bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Katie. And I'm Serena. And today we'll be talking about two weeks worth of Come Follow Me. We'll cover Doctrine and Covenants 2, Joseph Smith History 1, 27 through 65, and Doctrine and Covenants 3 through 5. two weeks in one podcast for Come Follow Me because in between the weeks that we do Come Follow Me, we're hoping to do interviews or short podcast episodes explaining random things about disability in general, vocab words, the disability activist movement, different kinds of podcast episodes in between these Come Follow Me episodes. And that'll give us a little flexibility to put even more diverse content out there. Yay! So, Doctrine and Covenants 2 and Joseph Smith History 1, 27 through 65, it's talking about after Joseph had the first vision, time passed, and he started realizing that he was an imperfect human, and he was feeling guilty about that and realized that he was making mistakes. And in his home, he prayed for forgiveness. And during that prayer, an angel appeared to him. And it was Angel Moroni, who is a real person from the Book of Mormon. In the Book of Mormon, he's a living person writing about his ministry. But he appears as an angel to Joseph. And he gives Joseph further instruction about finding gold plates in the Hill Cumorah. And about the things that he'll have to do to reestablish the church. When he receives this instruction, the angel Moroni appears to him three different times that same night and gives him similar instruction those three times. And then the next day he goes to work with his father. He's so tired that he can't do the work and he starts going home. And as he's going home, the angel appears to him again for a fourth time and gives him the same instruction and tells him to tell his father. Doesn't he collapse at one point on his way home? Yeah. I like that part. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking of you and me during that part because we're like, man, how many times has that happened to both of us? (laughs) Um, So he collapses on his way home and then goes back and tells his father. And then the verses continue to tell about how his father says that was a message from God. And then he goes to the Hill Cumorah, uncovers the plates, and then is given further instruction about how he has to wait some time before he can begin translating and how the Lord will help him through this journey. I think it's interesting how this whole experience for him, for Joseph, taxed his body. At the end of the third time when the angel appeared to him, he says the cock crowed. Meaning it was morning, so literally Mm. he was talking to Angel Moroni all night, and his body was drained from that experience. He didn't have a chance to rest, and immediately he had to get up and go work with his father, and they were farmers, so they had really hard physical labors. I think it's interesting that he tried to cross the fence. He was trying to go home, and then it says, My strength entirely failed me. I fell helplessly on the ground, and for a time was quite unconscious of anything. 
the first thing I can recollect was a voice speaking unto me, calling me by name. It was the angel Moroni. So he was completely incapacitated. And then the angel came uh-huh. to him again and was like, wake up. <laughs> I have to tell you more things. Yeah. And then he has to walk back to his father after collapsing, after being that tired. He goes to uncover the plates and they were under this giant rock that was partially underneath the ground. It says he had to use something as a lever to lift the rock. Then he was able to dig out and uncover the plates. And I think that that's really cool that he was to the point of such exhaustion that he went unconscious and then the Lord gave him strength. So the Lord took energy from him and then gave him more energy is what you're saying. Well, I would say his body naturally just was out of energy from not having sleep and from Mm -hmm. trying to work super hard. But I think it's really cool that he received all this energy out of nowhere to be able to do what else he needed to do that day. And it made me think of my mission. I served a normal proselyting mission. Well, I had to do a two-transfer mission before I served. Then I served 15 months of the rest of my mission in Texas. And, I mean, this doesn't always happen. I think that there are days that you're just really weak. And, you know, that's natural, especially for people with disabilities. But there were days on my mission where I was like, literally, I can't do anymore. Like, I'm done. I'm so tired. I can't do anymore. And the Lord gave me more physical strength. And that wasn't something that I knew could happen before my mission. I knew that the Lord could give spiritual strength and mental power, like, to understand things. But I didn't really know that he could still give physical strength to people who needed it. And I completely felt that on my mission. It was a really sacred experience for me as a person who's kind of used to their mortal, weak body. I feel like I can only do so much in a day, but I feel like my efforts were multiplied on certain days on my mission. And it made me reflect on that. I think it's really cool that Joseph was able to do so much more than initially his body was giving him at the beginning of the day. One of the things that I appreciate the most about my cataplexy is that it's kind of a turning the other cheek sort of thing in a way that calls people out. Because if someone says something harmful to me and I have an immediate visceral reaction, like I immediately collapse and they see it. They see it and then it kind of calls their attention to the harm that they've caused. Um, It embodies that harm in me. And I feel like that's part of holding them accountable, forcing them to look at and pay attention to their effect on me. So I guess I'm kind of sensitive to this because I'm like, people don't always need to say things a certain way. Like they can be more careful and more considerate, especially if it's someone that knows and loves me really well. You know what I mean? Like the Lord should know Joseph's limits. So I'm just kind of like, what's the purpose in pushing Joseph to those limits and then giving him extra strength, like to be like, to to tire someone out and then be like, okay, here, here's extra strength. Look what I can do. Look at my power. I gave you strength. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. Joseph was just a mortal human. And I, there's other accounts of people seeing God and having all of their physical strength being pulled from them because it's such a overwhelming experience to mm-hmm. experience divinity. Like, I just, I don't know. I don't like it when people push me or push any disabled person 
to their limits and try to uphold them to a production standard that's ableist. For mm-hmm. Joseph to continue working after that night, I feel like was kind of ableist, but I mean, his dad didn't know that he received that vision. Anyway, does that, does that yeah. make sense? Oh yeah, that's actually really interesting. That made me think about how, if you think about a disabled person compared to an able-bodied person, in a way, all humankind is weaker and mm-hmm. quote-unquote disabled compared to divinity. Divinity. Mm. All strength, all power, all ability. So it's a pretty direct comparison to say it's like a able-bodied person holding a disabled person to a standard that they're not able to do. Mm. Joseph was able to do it in the end, but he did have a moment where his body just, like, couldn't deal with what he was Mm -hmm. going through at the time. That's so interesting. Wow. Hmm. Very interesting. (laughs) I think that, like, we have weak moments in our lives, and they can be learning experiences, and I'm sure Joseph learned to rely on God that day as he was guided so directly by God. Yeah. And we can learn to rely on God in weak moments, too. I like the grounding of a spiritual experience in the body. I like how the story points out these spiritual experience Joseph was having were not just on his mind and emotions, but they encompassed his whole body. It was visceral. I don't know, I'm always looking for more links between the mind and the emotion and the body and the spirit, partially because my disability is so unique in that way. Yeah. You could read the entire scriptures and study just that. There mm-hmm. was someone on my mission who was doing that and studying how the body and the spirit are connected. And that, Really? Yeah, yeah. There's wow. a lot to that, yeah. I love that, especially since I was sent home from the MTC because I couldn't walk and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And all that was quote-unquote wrong with me was just that I was feeling the spirit in my cataplexy makes it so that when I feel a spirit really strongly, I can't walk. Oh, I didn't know it affected you that way. I, I knew that it had to do with emotion, and I didn't register mm-hmm. how that connects to your spirituality, too. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, like, there's a really strong testimony meeting. If I really connect with it, like, I can't walk. So, like, it's kind of ironic that they that my body was just doing the same thing that Joseph Smith's body was doing when encountering spiritual revelation, and yet he continued his mission, and I was sent home for my mission, you know? Oh, yeah. Wow. I lasted 15 days, barely two weeks. Wow. When I was learning about the surgery that Joseph Smith had when he was a young boy, I found this article on the church website. It was published in June 2013. It's called Joseph Smith's Boyhood Surgery, and it kind of goes into what was going on at the time in his family and, and his body. And it ends by saying, the skill of Dr. Nathan Smith, the surgeon who performed the surgery on Joseph, and the courage and the faith of the boy Joseph combined to not only save his leg, but also preserve his physical ability to fulfill his appointed mission. And I texted you with that mm. screenshot, and I said, so if Joseph was disabled, <laughs> he couldn't have been the prophet? Like, oh, <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, that is interesting how, uh, I mean, I do believe that the Lord can protect people with their bodies. I do believe certain people are protected from harm for different reasons. But mm. I, I just hated how that article ended. And it, and it is interesting how Joseph 
was given more strength to continue his mission and you weren't for your literal mission and why that happens. There's no way that we can answer perfectly why some people do receive healing and are able to move forward in their missions and why some weren't. You know, good and bad experiences come into your life, but the Lord has still been aware of you this whole time. Mm -hmm. So I feel like when we tell the story about how Moroni in angel form visited Joseph and woke him up in his sleep and told him more about how to find the gold plate, I feel like I forgot that while the angel Moroni was in Joseph's room, he quoted scripture to him. And it says the scriptures that he quoted. Mm. And I was like, oh, how have I never looked into this? So I read the scriptures that the angel Moroni quoted to him. And one of them, I was like, oh my gosh, it was so good. Is it the hearts of the children one? No. Ooh. Moroni quoted several scriptures from the Old Testament and the New Testament. One of the scriptures that he quoted is Joel 2, 28 through 32. And it starts right off by saying, And it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old Mm. men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And then it goes on. Love it. I thought it was cool that it said upon all flesh, so all people will have the spirit poured out upon them. And then it says, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And I'm like, oh, Angel Moroni quoted that to Joseph Smith. <laughs> and then you think about, like, how, well, initially, I think it came in waves. Like, there were times in early church days women used priesthood power in different ways. And then that was seen as bad, and it kind of stopped. And we don't really do it to this day, except for in the temple. And I don't know, there's small ways that women use the priesthood. They use priesthood keys in their callings but yeah I find I found that interesting uh of all the scripture that Angel Moore and I could have quoted to Joseph yeah I love that and that's not not even to mention like the phrasing about how the spirit will be poured out upon all flesh, all flesh and, yes. and daughters shall prophesy when you think about the word prophesy you think about a prophet speaking revelations right that's what I think of prophesy correct me if I'm wrong um, but think about how frequent you see disabled people in church leadership. Mm. Like, uh, according to how many numbers there should be of disabled people in the church, it's not as big of a thing as it should be. Yep, uh, we have a post about that, too. Is it a question of, like, physical barriers? Because certainly it isn't a question of spiritual barriers, mm. you know? So I, I don't really understand what the barrier is there. <coughs> Patriarchy. <coughs> Well, I was going to say it, it must have something to do with stigma, like, oh, that might take too big of a toll on this person to have this calling, or I don't want to overwhelm them, or, you know, things like that. But surely the Lord wouldn't say, oh, he can't do it because he's disabled, because the Lord can help anyone do anything. So yeah. it's not the Lord. Anyway, let's get into our dear friends, Martin Harris and Lucy Harris. Mm-hmm. Doctrine and Covenants 3 through 5 go more into who Martin Harris is, the story of him losing the 116 pages. Joseph and Martin started to translate the golden plates, and his wife and other family members were questioning if it was the right thing to spend his time with and his money, and they wanted proof of 
the golden plates. So Martin asked Joseph two different times, please ask God if I can take some of the transcribed pages to my family to prove to them like what we're doing. And initially God said no, and then Joseph asked again, and then God said, okay, but only show your wife and your family. And Martin took the pages, and then somehow, we there, no one knows to this day, but somehow they got lost. And Joseph and Martin Harris felt like their souls were damned, and that God would never commune with them again. And then the revelation in the last section, section 5, talks about how the ability to transcribe the scriptures was taken from them for a short time, but then if they came to God humbly and uh, continued to be obedient to the mission that he was sending them on, that he would forgive them and give them the ability to translate the scriptures again. We had a friend, Derek, from Beyond the Block, who uh, showed us this great article about Lucy Harris, Martin Harris's wife. It's called Lucy Harris Towards a Compassionate Reinterpretation by Rhett Stephen James, published in the spring 1997 issue of the Nauvoo Journal. What's not readily apparent in the stories that we tell about Lucy Harris and Martin Harris and the 116 pages that were lost is that Lucy had trouble hearing and Rhett Stephen James makes the case that you can't understand her and why she did what she did completely without considering the effects of her hearing impairment. How we know that she was partially deaf is actually Lucy Max Smith, Joseph Smith's mother, wrote, Lucy Harris was rather dull of hearing, and when anything was said that she did not hear distinctly, she suspected it was some secret which was designedly kept from her. And there is some speculation as to how Lucy Harris's deafness developed, perhaps through an infection, disease, or nerve damage, but there is also historical evidence she probably suffered pain, which could have contributed to her early death at age 44. This article is kind of a compilation of a bunch of different sources. If you want to read it, um, we can send you the link. And one thing that I thought was really interesting, the author writes, Deaf persons in Lucy Harris's lifetime were often the brunt of terrible unkindness and bigotry. Some people regarded them as mentally deficient or even demonic. It was not uncommon for a family to put a deaf member in, in another room when guests visited. I'm so glad that it gave context of how deafness was viewed at that point in history. First of all, horrifying. I can't believe that it was that much of a stigma. Um, but knowing this, it's not surprising that she's seen as the bad guy in this story. You know, anytime we hear about Martin Harris and the 116 pages we always hear that the reason why he lost the pages was because his wife Lucy was so determined to see them and he had to bring mm -hmm. them home to her. Like, I feel like she's always made out to be the bad guy in the story and uh, that could have to do with how her deafness was viewed at that time, that people literally viewed it as mental deficiency or demonic. I'm sure that that was a hard way for her to live, to live under that stigma and you know, who's to say if, if she reacted because of that or if she lived her life normally despite that? We don't know. But, 
yeah, it gives a lot of context to how her yeah. story is written. Yeah, because we, we've we just had Joseph Smith and Lucy Smith's account. Like, I just feel like in the church, we always prioritize those versions. All the stories that we have, we're always telling them from the perspective of the prophets. And, and that always means that they're usually going to be able-bodied and they're always, almost always men and almost always white. So I think it's really important to switch the perspective, at least for representation's sake, and tell the story from another point of view. Can we know what actually happened and who was right and in the wrong no, we can't know for sure because we weren't we weren't living back then. But just for the sake of fairness, I think it's important to 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 look at it from another point of view. I think that's an an exercise in critical thinking. Yeah, and it gives a lot more context. Like even if it's not who was right and who was wrong in a situation, it's literally like people view things differently and experience things differently, and mm-hmm. it to hear it from the same perspective every time we don't learn as much. Yeah. Going back to Lucy, the author writes, For some, she represented an embodiment of evil, if not as a metaphor for rebellion against truth, refusing even spiritual hearing, nearly worthy of the ancient demonic stereotype Lilith. Wow, going back to the whole disability or neurodivergence is demonic, is evil stereotype which we talked about in episode two yeah and that she's stereotyped simply because she like as refusing to have spiritual hearing rather than just Mm -hmm. having a different opinion about a situation and a different spiritual perspective on a situation you know yeah so the article also mentions that there were a lot of commonalities between between lucy smith joseph's mom and Lucy Harris, Martin's wife. Um, A big difference, though, is that Lucy Smith tried, quote, not to meddle in men's affairs, and Lucy Harris enjoyed being involved in men's business. The fact that a woman trying to be included is cast off as being not faithful, as being prideful, as being nagging or ungrateful. Um, And... Like, Martin Harris, Martin Harris, like, if, if you compare the two, what was she asking for that he did not also get, you know? I mean, if you call her unfaithful for, for not accepting the fact that he was translating without proof, well, he eventually got proof. He was one of the witnesses, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, if you if you compare, like, her asking to see the pages, well, those are pages that he saw, too. Like, you cannot say that she's nagging if she's simply asking for the same treatment that her husband is receiving. And something ironic about their relationship, Come Follow Me references a writing called Contributions of Martin Harris. And Mm -hmm. in that, it says, Joseph's mother met with Martin Harris and kind of explained what Joseph was doing, asked for money to be able to publish some of the writings that Joseph was doing. And translate. And Lucy Harris, Martin's wife, said yes, and Martin was hesitant and kind of said no and waited. And then he hired Joseph for labor, and then Joseph had to leave town because of being harassed, and then Martin gave him money. So initially, Lucy believed more in what Joseph was doing than Martin, enough to give him money. And then Uh 
things changed and Martin yes. was more connected to Joseph than Lucy, Martin's wife. Yes, she had more, quote-unquote, faith in the beginning than Martin did. And then later, once Martin decides to go all in and he gives Joseph that money, and afterwards he helps Joseph translate, um, etc., Lucy asks to be included and asks to see the translation, and they keep turning her down, right? And that's when she gets upset. Like, this is a symptom of the patriarchy that gets under my skin the most, is when men just think that they can't include women because the women won't get it, you know, or for whatever reason. Yeah. There's this, like, intense loyalty between bros that drives me crazy, and it pushes women to the margins. Like, Lucy Harris was upset because she wanted to be included, and she was tired of her husband always choosing someone else over her and keeping her out. Like, she wanted equal treatment. She was the one who wanted to help Joseph first, and now they're co-opting this without her? I'm tired of men shutting out women and anyone who's not masculine, I'll say that, like non-binary people as well, I'm tired of men doing that and being more loyal to the patriarchy than the women and keeping secrets. I personally feel like that's an example of secret combinations. The patriarchy is a huge freaking secret combination and it pisses me off. Right. It upset Lucy too. And she already isn't well received by her community, so doesn't even really have support. Right? Do you know where the article says that she isn't received well by her community? Yeah. Lucy Harris's hearing worsened. She spoke loudly, annoyed people, and became an embarrassment to others in her daily affairs. And I just want to say, I'm not deaf, but I relate to this so much. Like... I don't know, like, you knew me in high school. I just, I felt like all through puberty in high school, my personality was, like, kind of a barrier to people, like, caring about me. People told me I laughed too loud, I spoke too loud, I sang too loud, and basically I just existed too loud. I mean, I've I've made a lot more peace with it. I disagreed with them. And uh, their opinions were not accurate. Since then, I've learned to be more selective about my outbursts, if we can call them that. Um, and I've grown, like, more introspective. More often now, it's just, like, flat-out apathy from people. That is frustrating. People just, like, tune out my opinions, because kind of because they're like, oh, Serena always has opinions about something, and that just kind of want to mm-hmm. make makes me want to be louder, you know? <laughs> and actually, Lucy, at that point, when Martin asked Joseph over and over again for the 116 pages, was suffering, I would call it a mental breakdown. Um, I don't think that's a bad phrase, by the way, as someone who's experienced those. Um, she was having a lot of paranoia, and she went so far as to move all of her important, like, personal possessions, her furniture, and she, like, gave them to her friends and acquaintances and family um, just because she just felt this overriding fear. 
so that's what was going on when um, Martin asked Joseph for the pages, um, and when Joseph finally relented. I think in that instance, one could imagine that Martin loved his wife and he wanted to comfort her, you know? I'm glad as someone who has had romantic partners who haven't advocated for me during my mental crises. I'm actually really proud of Martin in that moment for advocating for his wife and for advocating for something that he knew would comfort her and ease her burden. When her husband Martin, so I'm summarizing some stuff in the article, when her husband Martin started working with Joseph Smith to translate and publish the plates after Joseph had refused Lucy's direct help, Lucy tried a bunch of different ways to obtain access to the translation and the plates. Okay, this is, there are historical sources for this. Some of them were quite clever. You can read them in the article. I identify with her so much in these moments because it reminds me of the intrusive thoughts I have when I'm splitting. And for me, I just get super paranoid. I get hyper-focused and I just feel this cold rage burning inside of me and I know exactly what I need to do to advocate for myself to um I don't know how to describe it with it without it sounding bad Uh, this this goes back to what we were talking about in episode two about the darkness and I said I do I like sometimes you do have moments of darkness I can imagine what she was feeling what Lucy was feeling when she was trying to gain access to the plates that kind of desperation And it feels like the only way to get rid of that feeling is to act on these intrusive thoughts. And I've become better at sitting and feeling those feelings and letting the feelings pass instead of acting on them. But it's still really hard. I don't know. Anyway, I just really relate to her in that moment. And it makes me wonder if she also had borderline personality disorder or if she... I don't know. I don't think just because you have the same symptoms as someone else that you would necessarily have the same cause. Um, But it's still really interesting to me. I want to go on to say, at least in this article, it says that Lucy Harris was the first recorded person after Joseph Smith to have any kind of view of the Golden Plates. It talks about how when she was visiting the Whitmer family, and Mary Whitmer, by the way, is the woman who is often referenced as the only woman to see the plates or to have a vision of the plates. But it says that while Lucy was visiting the Whitmer family, she had a vision, and this is actually recorded in Lucy Smith's account. And Lucy, as time went on, really didn't like Lucy Harris. She's, she's already biased, so the fact that she's recording this is really interesting. It says, The next morning after Lucy Harris arose, she related a very remarkable dream, which she said she had had during the night. Lucy Harris said that a personage appeared to her who told her that as she had disputed the servant of the Lord, that'd be Joseph Smith Jr., and said his word was not to be believed and had also asked him many improper questions, she had done that which was not right in the sight of God, after which he said to her, Behold, here are the plates. Look upon them and believe. Um, I think that's so funny. (laughs) You're pestering us with all your questions. Just look at them, okay? And be done with it, you know? At least that's the way Lucy Smith kind of described it. Anyway, then I thought what Martin Harris and Joseph were doing was denying Lucy a chance to be a witness. 
to the plates. So this woman received a witness of the plates, but who showed her the plates? Not Joseph, not any of the men involved in translating. An <laughs> angel had to come down themselves and show her the plates because the men in the patriarchy wouldn't let her see them in like on the, on their own, you know? Like I feel like this is another example of like the divine works outside of the patriarchy. The divine visited her and showed her the plates without the permission of Joseph Smith. So when we talk about Joseph asking the Lord to give the translation to Martin to show his wife and the Lord kept saying no 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 like part of me wonders like how much of that was actually from the Lord you know like how how much of that was just Joseph's internalized misogyny and him not seeing women as valuable witnesses you know I don't even think Joseph ever let Emma see the plates either his own wife well one of his wives (laughs) Anyway, so if we look at that and we accept the premise that the church structure is patriarchal and that God and the divine works outside of that patriarchal structure, we we can see that in modern day times too. In 2019, when President Nelson and the First Presidency received the revelation to allow women to be witnesses to baptisms, and to um, baptisms um, in the temple as well. I find that really interesting that after more than 200 years, women finally get to be witnesses. But like Mary Magdalene was the first person, according to the Gospel of Mark, to witness Jesus Christ in resurrected form. Like if we look at scriptural accounts, there are instances where this breaks through that whole notion that women can't be included, that women can't have authority, that women can't be witnesses, you know? And are there a lot of them? There are, but there there could be more. Just because there's only a few instances doesn't mean that it isn't valid because even just one instance breaks down that barrier and defies that expectation. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, and so now... Anyway, so even in this letter in 2019 that the First Presidency sent out to bishops and state presidents regarding female witnesses, it says, so they, they cite another Doctrine and Covenants uh, section, section 6, by the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. And it says, consistent with this direction, members of the church are invited to serve as witnesses when sacred ordinances of salvation and exaltation are performed. And then they list three requirements, basically like, above eight years old, baptized. So I think this is funny that this is, this is quote unquote progression, but it's still like, is not at the Lord's level. In my opinion, Lucy Harris didn't fit into any of those categories. The church was not organized yet. Officially, she was not baptized. She was not endowed. The divine still spoke to her and still considered her a worthy witness even without those constructs. And I think that's significant. I guess I hope that people will start to see the discrepancy between the way that the divine works in people's lives and the way that it is filtered through us, through the structures of the church, um, which are impeded by the patriarchy. 
this was new to me in reading this, and I, yeah. uh, it's wild that we don't know about this, but yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, she knew what she needed for her own testimony of the prophet and of the plates. Lucy Harris was persistent, and the angel said, okay, here they are. Look upon them yeah. and believe. <sighs> I think that's cool. In my head, it's hard to understand sometimes feeling like the will of God and your own wants and desires align when you aren't exactly sure what the will of God is for you. Like, I feel like if you really, really, really want something, then, oh, well, that's too bad. It's not going to happen if it's Mm, not the will of God. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if I'm explaining this well. So her wanting this so bad, putting so much, you know, effort into the cause of the gospel period and supporting Joseph and then just wanting this part back to have a better understanding of what was happening Mm -hmm. with the plates and with Joseph and then the angel was like okay look upon them here they are I just think it's really cool that that God understood her need and allowed her that even though so many people tried to keep Mm -hmm. them from her and she had to fight for it he knew her needs, and he still administered to her needs. I love what you just said. I just felt the tingle so strongly when you shared that. Yeah, I kind of don't like how the angel reportedly told her that she had asked many improper questions and had done that which was not right in the sight of God. Um, so it's funny to me that they would say that and then like answer her question anyway. I feel like that exasperation is a very human emotion. Or maybe Lucy Smith was just, like, putting her own spin on it. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, it would be interesting to learn more about that because I feel like often a pattern when God reveals things is that people, maybe if they show weakness or whatever is happening, they repent first, they go to him, and then he reveals line Uh, upon line kind of thing. But in this one, it doesn't say that she necessarily repented of everything that she did to try to see the plates. It just says she was called out for asking improper questions. She had not done that which was right by the sight of God. But then directly after, here are the plates, look upon them. <laughs> um, I, I feel like, I yeah, it's kind of confusing. I wonder if we're missing more information there. It, it's like what you said before, maybe we're not getting the whole story because mm-hmm. it's Lucy Max Smith telling Lucy Harris's story. Uh, kind of frustrating that Lucy Harris, that we don't have any articles or anything that's lasted of her telling her own Mm -hmm. accounts. (laughs) I kind of like her refusal to, to bow down. (laughs) Uh, I guess she was considered a quote unquote nasty woman of her time. (laughs) Oh my gosh. This is just my personality y'all. Like I, when I think (laughs) I'm right, I think I'm right. And I will advocate for myself in front of God and in front of people who supposedly represent God. And I'm not afraid if they don't like me, if they say that I'm going to hell, like I'm going to advocate for what I need. Um, And that's just who I am. I mean, it really is an example of how the Lord knows our hearts and the Lord knows how we work. The Lord knew that Lucy Harris was not Lucy Mm -hmm. Max Smith in that what you shared earlier. Lucy Max Smith tend to, you know, 
listen to authority and default to men. And that's fine. Like, that's how some people work. But Lucy Harris was a different person. And the Lord still administered to her and answered her questions. And I think we can learn a lot from that, that we don't have to be a Lucy Mac Smith to still commune with God, to still receive answers from him. Yeah, yeah. It is different from Lucy Harris, like you were saying. And I love it. I love how, at least in this moment, if we believe that this account is true, we can say the divine administered to Lucy Harris in her diverse way of thinking and of feeling spiritually. I love it. Another interesting thing that Lucy Smith recorded is that kind of in a response to the opposition to the Book of Mormon and the boycott, Lucy Harris mounted a horse and rode from house to house through the neighborhood like a dark spirit, making diligent inquiry, gleaning evil reports, and stirring up every malicious feeling to achieve her wicked purpose. (laughs) This is another one of those instances that reminds me of splitting and borderline personality disorder. (laughs) The whole reason, fun fact about me, I got a private investigator's license in 2018. The whole reason I was interested in the PI field was because I got too good at finding things out and at tracking people. That's exactly what Lucy Harris is doing in this moment. Like, I got my my beat-up 2003 Honda Accord, and I'm tracking people there, and she's got her horse, and we're both going in the middle of the night knocking on people's doors and asking questions and annoying people. Oh my gosh. I love her. I just, I wanted to channel those skills and and that almost quote-unquote dark feeling into something productive. And that's why I got my PI license. Uh, And I'm not a PI anymore. I stopped for ethical reasons completely unrelated to this. I just didn't want to support a corrupt criminal justice system. But yeah, I just wanted to share that. (laughs) I think you're the coolest. Mm. And from this article, I'm like, there's so much more to her that we didn't know. Yeah. She's incredible. (laughs) She's like just such her own person. And she was able to exist as a unique individual outside of what people thought about her, which was often really negative. And I love that she was still an empowered mm-hmm. woman despite that because I feel like that's hard that's a hard life to live if yeah. you're not accepted by other people and just to continue to be yourself it's hard yeah it was hard and there there were consequences for her there were social consequences um there were mental health consequences emotional costs financial costs and she just she did it anyway um she yeah she did what th- she thought was best and consistently chose herself Faithful Feminists, <laughs> I love them so much. They have this great episode about priesthood power and personal revelation, and I forget the title of the episode, but basically, what do you do when you receive revelation that is contrary to the revelation that a priesthood authority supposedly has gotten? And they talk about this this betrayal of the self in that episode, about how when women... When they consistently choose something else over their own intuition, like, we're destroying ourselves. Like, how can, I love this line, they say, like, how can we ever be perfected, which is a thing in our doctrine, how can we ever be perfected if we're never whole? Wow. I love that. Listen to that episode, y'all. Anyway, last thing, for the sake of being open 
And honest, Lucy was also the one who filed one of the first lawsuits of fraud against Joseph Smith Jr. Um, she wrote an affidavit that Joseph was just out to get money, um, and a bunch of witnesses were called in this court case, <clears throat> and her husband, Martin, uh, he was called as a witness. He swore in his testimony under oath that the plates did exist, that he had given Joseph money of his own free will, and that if people continued, quote, resisting the truth, it would damn them. And then after Martin said that, the judge wouldn't hear any more witnesses. Uh, they tore up the witness testimony, and the judge told everyone to go back to their own business and leave each other alone. The writer of the article also says, Poor help can make a cantankerous person out of the best people, especially when illness or life condition evokes bigotry from people within a culture, as has deafness. So, uh, that's just a great way to kind of summarize Lucy's experience. It's easy to judge her because we only have really, really basic facts about what happened. But there was so much more going on at the time. Mm -hmm. She did have struggles with her health, not just deafness or loss of hearing but other possible health problems and pain and there was a lot of bigotry about her within her local culture because of who she was did you read about martin replacing joseph seer stone yes i read that oh my gosh i was like who is martin harris <laughs> this is also told in the contributions of martin harris it says Martin started doubting when Joseph was translating that it was really happening. So one day to test Joseph, he replaced Joseph's seer stones with another stone, just a random stone, to see if he'd notice. Joseph was unable to translate, and when that happened, Martin admitted that he replaced the stones. And to explain his actions, Martin said he wanted to, quote, stop the mouth of fools who had told him that the prophet had learned those sentences and was merely repeating them. We've talked about ableist language before, and I'm like, how interesting that he says ableist language mm. to explain himself, to kind of like push the blame onto other people for his own actions. He's like, well, you know, I wouldn't have done it if fools mm. didn't question, and I wanted to explain to these fools what was really happening. Um... Just to give a little more history, fool is an early English word to denote a person with a learning disability, and it was sometimes used to denote mental illness. And it, of course, became ableist slang where people would call someone a fool who didn't actually have a mental illness or a learning disability just to call them, you know, less than mm -hmm. an able-bodied person that they were being silly or whatever. Ableist language, I think it's been throughout time and it's interesting. I think, it, um, yeah, that's... I honestly, I think I laughed when I read that because it's just, the situation is just kind of ridiculous. Uh, right. Um, and also, I want to point out that the seer stones are separate from the Urim and Thummim. Joseph used a lot of quote-unquote folk magic practices. That's the environment he grew up in, and he used that uh, to translate. He used it to find things and I want people to ask themselves if you believe that a man can set his hands on your head and tell you your future and your destiny then why not believe that 
these other tools could help guide revelation. If you're going to believe in revelation, then you have to believe in the unknown. And if you're going to believe in the unknown, then you have to recognize that you don't know everything and that there is more to know and that perhaps there are more ways to find out truth than you had previously considered. And this gets back to what we were talking about with neurodiversity before. People use different tools to access revelation and that's okay. Just because it seems weird to you that Joseph used stones to translate or that he might have used a divining rod to find water at some point in his life. Mm, very interesting. <laughs> Especially since we're talking about tools like people with disabilities and people who are neurodiverse, sometimes we have to use different tools. There's a parallel there between accommodations for for disabilities or for neurodiverse people and accessing spirituality, there's accommodations. Yeah, that's an interesting connection, how some tools that have been used in the past to bring about revelation, we kind of look at today and we're like, whoa, what is that? Mm -hmm. I feel like it's not talked about a lot and it's seen as strange. Disabled people also use tools that seem strange to go about their lives and to live to people who don't need them, but they're normal and they need to be respected. Autistic people sometimes use STEM toys mm -hmm. to bring them comfort if they feel overwhelmed. So sometimes the things that you chew on, things that you feel with your hands, if some people feel beads or like squishy toys, fidget spinners, that's originally why fidget spinners were invented, mm -hmm. were autistic people. Slinkies, stress balls, finger traps. Autistic people use a lot of different objects to calm themselves down with difficult yeah. touch. So if they can focus their energy on that one sense, it kind of helps them to calm down. If I'm understanding it yeah. correctly. Hopefully people can correct me if I'm understanding it incorrectly. I've been trying to educate myself about it. Able-bodied people would maybe view that as strange, but it's something that's normal mm -hmm. and useful. Not only strange, but I think, I think you're referencing the post that I shared on our story. Some people view it as childish which I think is super ableist. Some more examples for um, non-autistic people, but who are also neurodivergent, coloring books. I do things like yeah. that all the time to keep me awake and focused in church. But like, I have to bring snacks with me. Um, I have to do something with my hands and color. Like I actually focus better if I'm not looking at the speaker. Or a lot of times I'd bring knitting with me things like that to keep my mind going so that I could stay awake because otherwise my narcolepsy would kick in and I, I will fall asleep. People use diverse tools and we should celebrate that. Joseph Smith used diverse tools in his revelatory processes and I think that's great. Thank you for supporting Make us. sure you follow us on Instagram at holyhuman, W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N, and on Facebook at Holy Human Podcast. Also, please contribute to our Patreon. Also, a big thank you to Mativ for providing our intro and outro music. We access the song from freesound.org. For our podcast, we will be mixing it up a little bit and won't be doing a come follow me. Stay tuned to find out what exactly we're up to.